Hey everybody, it's Tug Coker from The Long Finish. As you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, that Catherine and I are running a contest. If you rate, review, and subscribe to our show between now and January 20th, and you send us a screenshot to our Instagram, which is The Long Finish, or our Twitter, which is TLFpod, send us a screenshot showing us that you've rated, reviewed, and subscribed to our show. You will be automatically entered to win two bottles of wine that we will send to you in advance so that you can enjoy them while we discuss them on the podcast. So come on in and join the contest. You have two weeks left to do it. The contest ends January 20th, 2020. Hopefully you win. Enjoy some great wine with us. And now let's get back to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Long Finish. I am your host, Tug Coker, and I'm here as always with my wife and co-host, Catherine Weil Coker. <sighs> hear that audience? They're <laughs> back for more in 2020. Oh, I'm so good. So good. How are you? Ha- ha- happy to be back. Yeah, I'm happy to be back too. It's um, been quite a, a whirlwind of what ten days for us, enjoying our holiday. It has been a true holiday. I hope everyone had a great holiday and welcome back to the work world. We made it to 2020. It's been quite a year, 2020 already. So um, we're looking forward to a fantastic year of the long finish. A lot of great ideas in store. Hope to reveal those in the next few weeks. But of course, we're always here to talk about wine, talk about some ideas around wine. And so let's just get into it, shall we? I'm ready. I'm I'm super excited about this wine tonight. What are we drinking tonight? Tonight, we are drinking a Riesling, one of my favorite producers, Donhoff. This family is father and son that makes the wine now. Um, but the family has been in the Nacha region of Germany for, I think, 250 years, something crazy like that. This is the Donhof Krutznacher Krotenfull. That is my excellent German pronunciation. It's a Riesling Spatletze from the Nacha, 2007 Germany. 2007 Germany is the key words for us. There's no way, with all due respect to this beautiful wine, it's going to fit into the title of our podcast. No. It's a lot of letters. It's, it takes a whole podcast just to say the title of the wine. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Everyone have a good night. <laughs> but the reason we're bringing this up, and we'll get to it in a second, is we wanted I wanted to put you on the spot. I did this taping that we'll reveal later about your predictions for 2020 wine trends. So this wine is a part of that trend that you think, that you hope will catch on. You and I are most of the time drinking the current vintage. So it's really fun to drink something with a couple years on it. And this is a wine that was from our cellar, actually, which is super fun because we never break into that stash. As we mentioned before, it's in the wine fridge in the closet of our children's bedroom. So once the children go to bed, no, 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 we are not going in there. And you're really good at saving things. I'm very good at saving things. We always talk about this. It's a good marriage. There's two types of people in the world. People that when they buy clothes, they wear them as soon as they buy them. 
Me. And then the people that buy them and then wear them many months, if not years after they buy them. And still don't take the tags off. Which is me. I don't know what it is. Delayed gratifier. But it just makes, I don't know, somehow it means more when I pull it out a year later and say, wow, I didn't know I had this. That's cool. Well, I will say as a wine professional, I'm very happy to have you balancing me out because yeah. I would have ripped through all those the wines. The oddity of mine <laughs> is finally paying off in some respect. But, yeah, it's helpful. So we'll get into the wine in a second, but we want to catch everyone up on what's going on in our life. And as I'm sure most of you are, are just getting into the new year. We spent the last, I don't know, week or so back in my hometown of Fredericksburg, VA. And as we said on a previous podcast, um, I want my kids to hang out with their grandparents, obviously, but I, selfishly, I want my grandparents to watch my kids <laughs> more while I get to, to sleep in. Your parents. My, my parents. Thank you, my parents. Anyone related to you, actually. Yeah, I want anyone <laughs> related to me. Or not to related. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't care if you're related or not. I just want you to be, be available to watch my kids. And so I did get that. I, there's an at, there's a room in the attic <laughs> of my parents' house that I, I was lucky enough to sleep in for the week. And, um, and my mom would get up uh, for us. You did get up. You continued to get up around 6 in the morning. Your mom got up many days. Yeah. A few days I got up at 5 a.m., but she then relieved me around 6.30 on those days. She was so, so helpful in letting us sleep. My God. Thank you, Linda. And I think we realized a lot of things on this trip. But, you know, it's fun to have cousins of the same age playing with our kids and just having more eyes. And that's one advantage that a lot of families have. And frankly, some of our friends in California have where they have their grandparents. Parents and grandparents are the kids, you know, around. And we just don't have that luxury. So it's fun to go back and um, dump them off. Is that an appropriate parent term? Dump your kids on somebody? I think it is appropriate. I'm not sure that's even remotely related to what happened, <laughs> but <laughs> but I think people do say that. But it was a lot of fun for me to get back to Virginia. I always love going back home. I do get back about once or twice a year, so it was great to see some, some friends and some people that listen to the podcast. So thank you to everybody in Fredericksburg, Virginia that listened to the podcast. And we picked, because of the podcast, we learned about some wine that ha- do have great wine in Virginia. And there's a, a wine shop in Richmond called Barrel Thief. Which we were recommended to by several wine professionals, one in Chicago, one in LA, and winemaker in Virginia, that all said this is the go-to place. And I called over the phone and talked with a gentleman named Greg about what I was looking for, and he walked me through some bottles, and then we had a friend come pick up the bottles. Yeah, shout out Connor Ashby. Thank dri- you, Connor. Driving from Richmond, VA, picking up the wines that we uh, selected over the phone. It was super, like, to Fredericksburg. so easy and so fun to have new wines, but really what I knew would be, like, good and thoughtful and fun wines to share family. That was awesome. The two hits for us, I think, were, one, the champagne that we drank. Yeah, it was Pierre Payard. was awesome. Yeah, we drank that um, with my parents, and we watched Knives Out on our New Year's Eve. Very exciting. We talked really about being cutting edge and on the forefront of stuff and we're, we're not going out we're, we're actually going to dinner at like 5 30 coming home and watching a movie it was the best and then at like 11 45 your mom's like do you want me to make popcorn i was like yes she <laughs> made popcorn we ate junior mints and milk duds and drank oh, champagne and watched a movie i mean she and i are both like giddy like this is super fun junior mints and champagne <laughs> is like your rap album it is um, but also the, my family was into one of the uh the uh, Brusco. Frankly, a lot of people are still 
uh, being introduced to Lambrusco, which is cool because it's uh, we should do something later on in the winter because it's appealing to people because it's delicious and it's affordable. Yes, something fun, different. Lambrusco is always a great hit. Good Lambrusco. Is, a good one. It's great. A good one. But the event for us the past few days actually was the, the travel home. Well, I'm sure a lot of you were traveling with young kids. Kudos to you for surviving that. That was a, an absolute war of attrition going cross country with a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Well, the first flight to the East Coast was direct. The We connected home, but we thought maybe it would kind of break up the flight. And to a degree, it did work. But our one-year-old is almost walking. He just doesn't want to be in someone's lap. So this is probably bad parenting. But at a certain point, I just let the one-year-old crawl up and down the airplane. And a lady stopped me and said, that's probably disgusting. And I turned to her and I said, lady, this whole plane is disgusting. No one's cleaning these seats. Yeah. Like, who's saying that the floor is really better than the seat or the tray table of the person that sat before you? You just have no... I mean, I'm sure the floor is worse, but whatever. You know, with our first child, we were like, oh, wipe down the seat and everything. Now it's like, you cannot possibly even cover all that. Also, this baby had the flu at two months old and he survived that and he's been sick so many times and he's going to have the immunity of just like the strongest man on earth. He's just going to be... I mean, I mean, I picked him up... And on... he hasn't been sick since, so... Eh. Well, knock on wood, please. I know, gosh. I don't want that to happen. Well, you kind of just know you're in for a long day because the travels about 11 12 hours from Fredericksburg got to drive to DC fly cross country and then you know then you spend time basically kind of reacclimating yourself to life and yesterday and we just realized like we're in a two bedroom apartment in Santa Monica an apartment that we love but it's just not big enough like we just realized when when you go back to a place where like there's a space and then you come back to a place where you're in a sardine can Oh my gosh! Um, and you're trying to take your Christmas decorations take, down. Uh, take, okay, <laughs> we try. We try to take our Christmas decorations down. We did that somewhat successfully, but then we have we we put a, tr- a plant back where the Christmas tree was, and the kids proceeded to knock the plant over, dirt and all, into the living room. And then I, I picked it up, and it was leaking. Wa- I just watered water. it, so I dragged dirty <laughs> water across the living room. And then oh. you know, and then uh, meanwhile, our next door neighbor, who is great, has a has a dog that ran to that. Our apartment. But hey, you know, we're back. I'm excited about 2020. 2019 was a tough year for, for me and probably a lot of people out there. And I'm excited about the potential, quote unquote, potential of 2020. And um, I don't know. It just feels good. It feels good to be back in California. It feels good to have had a little break. I, I, I think we both commented on each other's faces saying we look like we slept a little bit. Ask us again in a week if we slept. But It felt so good. And I just want to say a big, big thank you to your parents, John and Linda, for... Ah, hosting us for a fabulous holiday. Yes. I am rested. Thank you to my parents. And because of that, you know, our kids were relatively um, easy to put to bed tonight. Totally. They're all tired. They're all in East Coast time. Mm. And um, hopefully they'll sleep uh, past three in the morning. So that's what's going on in our world. And now we're here to get to the main event of the night, which is two things. One, last week I went ahead and asked Catherine, put her on the spot for one or two trends that she thinks is going to take place in wine for 2020. Maybe right, maybe wrong. We'll circle back at the end of the year, see what she got right. So here's what she said. Now I want to put the pressure on you. Document this. (laughs) What is one trend in wine that you think we're going to see in 2020. Looking into my crystal ball here, I am really seeing this trend for dark rosé. Rosé has been a thing for years. 
six years now, five years now. But people are always concerned about the darker rosés. They're looking for the lighter Provence style, super dry. But I'm telling you, there is a trend that's moving towards darker rosé. More complex, just darker in color, sometimes more body. Just people being more adventurous with their rosé choices. I really see that as a thing in 2020. My other prediction... Well, I don't know if this is a prediction as much as it is a hopeful wish. My hopeful wish for 2020 is that people will get excited about vintage. It hasn't really been talked about much because it's traditionally prohibitive for people just with everyday kind of wine buying budgets. Vintage wines are for people who have wine cellars or wine collections or lots of money and they want to buy older vintages of things. But I have this idea or hope that people with younger palates or everyday wine buying budgets want to delve into some different vintages. And I've explored some recently at Esther's and I hope to really go deep in it next year with just finding older wines of any kind because there's something special about opening a bottle from 1999 or 1985 and thinking about, wow, A, what patience to have left this. B, wow, what different notes, flavors, bouquet things are we getting from this that we just don't get from everyday fresh two to three year wine. So that is my prediction and slash hope for 2020. That's interesting because the the darker rosé thing is something you've been on for a couple of years. I remember the if I'm pronouncing this right, the Umathum or the Umathum one that I think you opened Casilla with. Yep. Very like purpley almost rosé. Yeah. Um, which was delicious, but sometimes people were hesitant to buy it because, like you said, didn't have that Provence-style lighter uh, but we've, color. But we've had a Cerasuolo di Abruzzo on the menu at Esther's. That's a region in Italy really known for darker rosés on the menu, and people have been excited about it. I think it's going somewhere. The vintage thing is a surprise to me because... In the time I've known you as a you know a wine enthusiast, you've been a proponent of the just more usually more the fresher, more recent vintages. So this is a unique thought. I love you. the fresher and whatever is new and fresh. I love, but time and bottle is such a part of wine of what wine is in this world, and we get so caught up in being whatever is new and shiny. And I think, like many people, that buying older vintages means paying a lot of money. But that is not always true. And I want to find the corners of the world that we can explore older vintages without paying an arm and a leg and just see what it's like to have more years in a bottle. I'm just personally really have a lot more curiosity about that right now. Well, that's cool. I hope we see that trend as well because it'd be fun to, like you said, find affordable vintage wines. I remember one example to me, I think, was there's that Lebanese winemaker. That Chateau Moussard. Chateau Moussard. That, they had some stuff, I think, that was like 99s and things like that, which was quite cool to see and very well priced. So if that's a trend, I'm, I'm excited about it. So we'll hold you to it. Okay. We're going to circle back this time one year from now and look back, which Catherine write about darker rosés being the trend for 2020 and affordable vintage wines. Fingers crossed on that one for 2020. Well, it's my wish. Okay. So two things. You think it's going to be darker colored rosés are going to be the trend for 2020. And your wish slash trend for 2020 will be 
more approachable, affordable, easier to get vintage wines. Yeah, just drinking vintage variation, not just drinking the like newest, freshest thing. And that sometimes means trying off varietals that are older vintages or different regions or or sometimes, you know, digging through your cellar. I mean, we're going to find out. But that was why I wanted to dig through our cellar tonight to get this 2007 Donhoff Krotznacher Krotenfull. Yeah, that was <laughs> oh, the second, second oh, try boy. of that. Riesling boy. spot, let's say. So I'm sorry, but this wine is unreal. It's so good. And I will say this. <laughs> it is just, unreal. Just a quick aside on your German. You have a mother that I can help you speak French. You also have your brother's long-term girlfriend, Uli, who speaks German, who we should get on Instagram story. Have her correct your German. Yeah, that would be helpful. I feel like your German Slash, is sadly. worse than your French. Oh, I'm sure. Because at least sometimes hear French. I feel like I never hear German. But visiting Germany is really one of my... It's like number one on your it list. It is. Yeah. And I would love to go here uh, all over, really. So let's talk about the wine. First of all, I want to say that I picked up this wine at Wally's. Years ago. A couple years back. I was just popped into Wally's and there was a sale on some... Rieslings. And I took advantage of it. And I think that's kind of part and parcel to what we're talking about with these vintages is just going and looking around, kind of doing some snooping around and seeing what you can find. Yeah. And, you know, Riesling is super popular with wine people, but it's not a insanely popular grape variety with everyone, with the general public. It's not Bordeaux. People aren't buying futures. It's not Burgundy. It's Riesling. It's so specific. It's, it has the lovers and the haters. So sometimes they probably just want to move through a product and like, well, let's lower the prices on this and like get through it, which was like awesome for us because 2007 was an amazing vintage in Germany. And just a second to talk about vintage. So vintage is the year that the grapes are harvested. So the vintage just, you know, is so different year to year and particularly in a region like Germany that's a lot cooler. But in a classic vintage, I was reading actually thanks to Jancis Robinson, in a classic vintage in Germany, there are 100 days between flowering and harvest. And for some producers, in 2007, there were almost 170 days. That's crazy. So it was a really long, long, warm growing season. No rain. It was awesome. So what you're saying is within that 170 days, there was less extremism in the weather, right? It was just consistently uh, temperatured. Exactly. The wine. Exactly. Great. That's cool. I mean, I, when I was buying it, I didn't buy it because I thought it was, I didn't know that the year was special. I think I bought 2007. I think I bought 2011, frankly, because they were on sale because this guy loves a sale and he loves to like hold on and not, not wear his clothes for two years after he buys them. God bless you. But uh, it's, it's working here. And like you said, I think this wine is absolutely delicious. But frankly, I think Riesling is just a great way to start off the year. I think it's a great way to kind of ease back into the year. Some Rieslings are lower ABV and it's just got an enjoyable quality. Right. Lower ABV. Guess what the alcohol is on this? Just guess. Nine? It says 8.5. It's amazing. Yeah. We were drinking a classic Cabernet Sauvignon last week with your family that was 14.6. That's probably standard. This is awesome. You have that second glass for almost two glasses of the other one. I love that. So let's hear more about the producer. Do you have information on the producer? Yeah. So Donhoff is a family. It's a father and son team that make the wine now. Uh, Helmut is the father and Cornelius is the son. They have about 25 
hectares and they have nine single vineyards that are all Grand Cru. They handpick everything and they are fair and green, which is kind of a new certification in Germany and recognized in Europe overall, sustainable certification that actually means something. And it's not something you pay into, but wine growers share information about how to better do things. This is coming from vineyards that are 15 to 35 year old vines um, on quartzite and gravel. So there's great drainage. And I just think Donhoff in general, it is certainly a sommelier darling. The producer is totally like this. One of the first producers that people will order at Casilla for Riesling. Just point blank. They'll just they order it. And I think one is because it's just laser sharp. The like precision of this wine is unreal. It's crystal, crystal clean. It's electric. You know what I mean? Totally. The high notes are so high. You can pick out all the individual nuances in the nose and the palate as well. It's just really, really clean, pretty, pretty. Electric is the only way I know how to say it. Wine. And they do make some dry wines, which are also fantastic, but most of the wines are on the, have some sugar. And so when, when I say that, there's a system in Germany, there's like table wine, kind of like land wine, which is what they have in France and Italy as well. And then there's Qualitat wine, which is, it could be trocken or fine herb. And then there's the Pradicat system, which this is part of. And so it's based on ripeness level. That's based on the level of sugars in the grapes at the time of harvest. And it starts with cabinet and then goes to spotlets, which is this. And then there are other, it goes later, later, later harvest all the way down to ice vine. And ice vine is when the grapes are actually frozen on the vine. So this is the second level. Often that means that it has more sweetness to it because the grapes have more sugar when they're picked. It could mean though, you could have a spotlitza that's dry if it's fermented all the way. You don't see that very often, but it's possible. But this wasn't. So there is sweetness in this wine, but there's also so much acid. Riesling just is a high acid grape that it really balances it out and what you get with that sweetness is it just all the notes in the nose and the palate just kind of explode with that it has so many floral notes like I feel like my nose is in a bouquet of lilies in the best sense and honeysuckle and honey and tangerine and peach and pear and quince and new tennis ball which is kind of a thing for Riesling that kind of like almost plasticky thing i mean that in the best sense yeah it's a common indicator used for riesling that that people like me like to make fun of people like you for yeah. for saying but you know what i'm talking about though right i do i do smell it but i probably never would say that if you didn't say it first so let me ask you this to continue the theme for 2020 why is it fun to be drinking this wine with some age it's so funny that this is 2007 because if i was just drinking it blind i'm not sure i would say that i'm not sure i would know that this is a 13-year-old wine. Is that a testament to the wine itself? Why are we saying that? I'm saying that for this particular wine because it's so fresh. I think it's fun to taste vintage wine, not just because I'm like, wow, this is cool. It tastes old, but just to see, just to have that experience. I don't drink enough Riesling to be able to taste this blind and say, oh, this was 2007. I do drink enough Riesling to drink this and say, wow, that came from like an amazing, perfect vintage. You know, because the 
the fruit is so ripe and perfect. The acidity and the sugar is just like absolutely in balance. Everything about it is super expressive. It's just like, it's a perfect one. It's kind of perfect. It's a great one. It's, so, it's really delicious. Now, one thing about Riesling as it does age, two things for sure I can tell you is one, that the color will get darker. And that's true for all white wines. The color just get, and this is like a deep, deep yellow gold. So that's one way if I was drinking this blind, I would know, oh, that, that's got to have some age on it because look at that color. The other way is that for me, that petrol, that tennis ball thing, it just comes out more and more with age. So when I've had Rieslings from the 80s, the 70s, I get more of that petrol. The other thing about age is like sometimes with a new fresh wine, you might name, wow, this is so like so tangerine, so peach. You know, you get these really clear three or four things that you get in the nose or whatever. And when it has age, sometimes you just could list a lot more things. I mean, I listed a bunch. I could probably, we could probably go on and on. We could spend an hour talking about all the notes in this. I think we have one more bottle of this. At least. It'd be fun to open yeah. this again in like another five, ten years. Totally. Just see what it, happens. Maybe yeah. it'll be still fresh. Well, we we had a sip of wine the other night. It was 93 and tasted fresh as a daisy. You know, I mean, sometimes you just don't know. And when you say sweetness, is there another term for that residual sugar? Yes. So what? Do we, so just to give a definition to like a, the word of the week out there is RS or residual sugar. R- what are we talking about? There? RS, residual sugar, is the amount of sugar left in the wine after fermentation. So sometimes fermentation is actually manually stopped. Stop by the winemaker to leave some sugar in there to balance the wine. So you want to have some acid, a little bit of residual sugar to balance that acid and to make the wine feel complete that you're getting the best version of that wine. Sometimes, a lot of times in Germany and other regions, there's so much sugar in the wine to begin with that fermentation just naturally stops at some point because it just doesn't fully complete. That's just what happens with a lot of sugar. It only goes so far. And then you're left with a wine that has lots of acidity and some sugar. And the winemaker's job is to find the balance, to make the wine that expresses that vineyard, to make the wine that is the best version that it can be. And sometimes that's fermented all the way and all the sugar is converted to alcohol, a higher alcohol wine with no sugar, a drier style, a totally dry style, or sometimes... The idea is to make a wine that has complete balance, some level of sweetness, residual sugar, sugar left, literally left over in the wine that balances the acid. Okay, so for people that want to get into Riesling, I have just a couple questions. What can we learn from the label that tells us as much information as possible about the wine? Well, just basic, basic for beginner people. If you're looking at a Riesling from Germany, if it says Trocken on it, T-R-O-C-K-E-N. That means it's dry. It may have a few grams of sugar in it. You will not notice them. It is a dry wine. Then there's Habtrocken. That means off dry. It's going to be like, it's going to have a little sweetness to it. With a Riesling that says Cabinet, it's going to have a little sweetness. Spot, let's say, which is what we're drinking tonight, more sweetness. And then there's Auslice, Baron Auslice, Trocken Baron Auslice, and Ice Wine. And those are all have more sugar, all have more sweetness. But you would never guess how much because the acid's so crazy. Well, that's what I'm getting at with this, this wine tonight. Well, I think it's why it's so delicious because it is Spot, let's say, there is sweetness. There's doesn't drink sweet at all. Okay, well that's helpful though, because we're trying to like again when you when you walk into a wine store and you want to 
took a shot at something new, it's important to read what's on the label to kind of give you information so you kind of know what you're getting into. Yeah. Expectation. I mean, the the tricky thing is like you're not going to know a, a Riesling how dry or sweet it is if it's from a new world. The good news about Rieslings is that they're relatively affordable. That's the thing. It's the same thing we've been saying before. We're saying before about Merlot. It's like not that popular. So you can get in and try a lot of different things. And Riesling sometimes means sweet, but it doesn't always mean sweet. So even if you're like afraid of a sweet wine, that's fine. You can look for a dry style. Just ask for a dry Riesling or a Trocken Riesling. You can get that. Most Rieslings from Alsace are dry. There's that too. Alsace being? In France. Yes. It's important to let people know that. It's been in both countries. This is true. Um, So my final two questions about that are, because I think I I can um, conflate a question, which is, um, if you're not from the uh, you know Santa Monica area, you can go to another wine uh, merchant and say, I'd like to try a Riesling that is trocking or dry or whatever. And you should find one for under $40, $40 $50 for sure. $30 maybe, $25? Absolutely. I mean, you can get you can get a great Riesling for 20 bucks. And they're making some great ones in uh, the Finger Lakes of New York too. There's like some, some great Rieslings come out of the U.S. too. So make sure you go to the, your local wine store and ask them about trying some Rieslings. And the last question I want to ask you is, of course, pairings for Riesling. Kind of hard to mess this one up, but it's great with like really rich or fatty foods because it kind of cuts through that. But it's really, really great with spice. It's kind of a classic pairing because spice and sweet go hand in hand. At Casilla, there's a huge, huge, huge Riesling menu thanks to Mariana Caldwell who's just like on a mission to prove to people that this is the wine they should be drinking and she's absolutely right it's like there's nothing that's better would Mexican food work with Mexican a lot of times I kind of want a beer but makes sense but a light re- a lighter Riesling would be great too you can think about like why like food from the region as well. Get a super spicy bratwurst. That would be awesome with this wine. Something fatty and spicy. It also could be good with some sweeter things. Like if there's pork with like a really fruity salsa on it or something. Like a fruity sauce that needs something sweet to go with. That could be great. So final thought on the fact that we went into our cellar, pulled out a wine. What's your evaluation of your experience of this wine? Been awesome. So awesome like i i am really having a hard time talking tonight because i kind of <laughs> want to just sit here and sip this wine and enjoy it. i'm just being totally honest like sometimes you just want to like you know into the wine and that's what's happening to Great. me we'll right off, now we'll get off the air and enjoy the wine. <laughs> no it's i i think it's so important to to kind of label it and talk about it and and it's also so important to just sit back and enjoy it uh, i want everyone to know that i picked these wines out without supervision so i'm extremely proud of you did for getting these wines the last question i'll ask you about uh because we're at the topic of vintage we talked about vintage in the past with regards to burgundy which depending on it could be depending on the day you kind of you don't know what you're going to get with burgundy vintages less so with riesling more in line like less volatile i w- want to say like you you know when you, when you want to open it, you're, you have a better shot of maybe it being closer to what you imagine it to be? It's not moody like Burgundy is. I mean, there's still like, you know, wine goes through phases where it's more expressive or less expressive. Sleepy times, I like to say. But with Riesling, you're a little bit more sure of what you're going to get. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying the wine. It's a great way to kick off 
the long finish 2020 and um we'll get off the air and we'll finish the bottle yay all right now we'll get to the last portion of the evening which is what has been inspiring us this week or recently Catherine, do you have anything yes while we were in fredericksburg I was walking downtown on Caroline Street, and I had the pleasure of going into Riverbee Books, a used bookstore, and I was just in love with this place. They have such a cool, eclectic way of organizing all the books. They have like thoughtful, personal little notes all around the store to talk about like books they love or funny little sections or little stories. They have gifts. They have a whole kids section. Then they have these funky little chairs and places to sit. It was just like, oh, I felt so at home in this little place. Man, it was just totally a joy. I said to the lady when I was checking out, I said, gosh, I wish I wasn't reading so many new releases because... I want to read every book in this place, but I don't know. That's just a fun feeling you get in a bookstore. Well, two things. We were able to walk in a couple bookstores in Fredericksburg, and it's fun to walk in a bookstore still. We don't have that opportunity to no, do that. No, we just never get in to. In Santa Monica right now, a couple of bookstores closed. There's a couple of smaller bookstores that are still around, and we want to champion those bookstores. So I guess the moral of the story is go out and support your local bookstores, uh, whether they be new or used, and get out there and read 20 books. Uh, that's the goal for Catherine of 2019 was to read 20 books. You did it, right? Do you have a goal this year? 24. 24 books this year. You read one over the break you loved. Do you want to shout it out? Oh my gosh. Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. Hilarious. Totally worth the hype. So I'll put that book on Instagram story and you can continue your quest to get everyone to join Catherine's book club. My inspiration goes to, I know a lot of people want to maybe enjoy a dry January. I will not be partaking in a dry January. Thank you. I have two kids. And a wine shop. And a wine shop. But I'm catching up on some old New Yorker issues, and I read an, a great article by Anthony Lane in the December 9th issue. I'll put this on Instagram story, Instagram on a, the long finish, longfinish.com. It's a story basically on the history of gin, the alcohol gin, and its uh, sudden resurgence to popularity in America and where it's been uh, popular for a long time in the UK. It's a really fun article. It talks about the origins of gin, how gin is made, some of the cocktails, some of the stories, places where you know popular drinks originated. It's super fun. So if you are a gin drinker or if it's something that you're just interested in, the history of cocktails and things like that, I highly recommend the article. It's a lot of fun. It's in the December 9th issue of The New Yorker, again, by Anthony Lane, called The Intoxicating History of Gin. So check that out and um, hopefully uh, you'll make a nice cocktail as you do it. All right, that does it for episode 14 of The Long Finish. We've done 14 episodes. Thank you to everyone who continues to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. It means a lot to us. I hope you all continue to do that and make sure you enter to win the contest where we'll give away two bottles of wine for you to enjoy as we discuss them on the podcast. That that contest ends January 20th, so please make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe and then send a screenshot to The Long Finish on Instagram or Facebook. Facebook or TLF Pod on Twitter. We'll get you entered to win. Thank you again. Hope everyone has a wonderful start to 2020. Catherine, where can they find you and the long finish on social media? On Instagram, Catherine Wild Coker or the long finish. And on Facebook, Catherine Wild Coker and the long finish. You can find me at Tug Coker on both Instagram and Twitter. Happy 2020. Happy New Year to everyone out there. Thanks for listening. And until next time, happy drinking. Ciao.